This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not treat anything in this episode as financial or other advice. The hosts and guests may hold positions in some of the companies and securities discussed. Remember to seek independent professional advice relating to your own circumstances before making any investment decisions. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. <laughs> Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Joel. And this is Sam. And welcome to Trawling for Ten Bagers. This podcast is about learning how to identify high conviction opportunities in small caps on the ASX. We talk to the experts in the space to help you learn how to speculate and protect your capital longer term. Our guest today is Jonathan Field from Prenzler Group. Jonathan has an extensive experience in the financial markets with a current focus on identification, support and funding of early stage companies. We talk with Jonathan today about early identification of businesses and sectors that are likely to be future growth industries, what role corporate advisors play and other steps involved in supporting a company before they're ready to list on the ASX. All right, Jono, thank you for, for jumping on to Trawling for 10 Baggers this morning. Can you just start off by introducing yourself to our listeners and, and what you got you into the finance arena. Okay, yeah, look, thanks for having me. Um, basically, yeah, look, I, I first got into the finance arena. I was playing golf with a mate of mine who was a broker at the time and uh, he recommended an upcoming float called Link Energy. So being a young guy who loved to have a punt, I put all my money into it as you do. Um, it was a 20 cent IPO. Uh, put it all in. This is kind of in, oh, let's call it for 2016. Um, so I put all my money in and then you know, the, the business subsequently listed. It didn't list all that great. It traded down to around 17 cents. So I'd been working, uh, you know, on, I was actually sweeping tennis courts at the time. So I was sweeping a lot of tennis courts and threw an additional amount of money into it and um, subsequently then watched the investment as we sort of went into the 2017 boom time. Uh, go to around five bucks thirty nine. I think was the high. Uh, that was uh, that was exciting stuff. Uh, obviously, corresponding from that, I thought I was a genius. Uh, and obviously, around that time as well, I was playing a lot of online poker. So I thought I was an investment slash gambling genius. Uh, and then, yeah, the twenty eighteen GSE hit. I subsequently lost most of my investments, but. Um, yeah, by then I was completely hooked with the market and, um, you know, I guess the, the rest is history. Brian, John, I just want to jump in because you mentioned 2016, 2017. I'm assuming you mean the GFC 2, 2006, 2007 because unless you are just uh, no, sorry. sweeping what, the tennis courts in the last few years, mate, that's... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all right. Let's just, let's just take a decade. Yeah. Thanks. So you just managed a lazy 20, 25 bags and you thought you were a genius. And, and often we hear from a few listeners is the worst thing you can do early on is, is, is be really successful. So um, naturally, what sort of followed on from there? Did you um, blow up an account or blow up a position here and there? I blew up a few accounts. I did, um, you know, at the time I thought I'd, I just thought it was all easy. You know, I thought the, the, you know, the share itself would just continue on to 10 bucks uh, and just, thought I was a genius and then obviously look it was the best thing that ever happened to me you know losing most of it it, di- it didn't stop me you know whilst I was at uni basically taking a week off crying in my bed but um 
uh, yeah, look, basically it meant that I then went into an early stage broking job. So that, that meant I hopped onto the sell side uh, and started broking and um, look, probably made a few more mistakes in the interim in terms of supporting companies and everything like that. As we sort of came out of the, the GFC, you know, there was a Greek crisis in sort of 2011 or 2012 or whatever it was and, you know, went from there. So I had a few other broking jobs and then... Um, you know, that obviously led me towards uh, the AMA times and then hopping over to the buy side and then, you know, as a very sort of obviously, you know, short format uh, has brought me where I am today. Yeah, terrific. Do you want to um, just, just sort of give the listeners a bit of an overview about sort of the corporate work and that sort of move away from broking and, and what might have changed and, you know, good or bad that sort of led you down towards this corporate gig that you've got now? Yeah, look, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I guess broking, you, you came into it and I, I sort of came into it, into it and it was still, uh, you know, a, a transactional thing where you, you'd start, look, yes, the SMSF world had really started to take off and, you know, you were setting up SMSF funds, you are doing sort of retail dealing and, you know, you're largely just doing transactional stuff and, as we've moved along, I've just, in, you know, in my view, I've just sort of seen that that part of the um, that part of the broking world is really dying. And I naturally myself was always one who who liked to sort of find new ideas. And you know, I was obviously a bit bit of a maverick in that respect. I didn't really fit the broking mold where you'd use the you know the house product sort of model portfolios and research and things like that. So. I just found I just I just really wanted to get out there and find my own opportunities and um, you know learn as you go about bringing them together and um, you know obviously that's that's the, the time then it um, you know on the on the buy side then ta- taught me a lot about buying well so really prosecuting value and trying to get the best valuation for businesses to the point where I'm at now which is you know a corporate advisory thing I'm going out there finding new businesses, finding new themes to bring to the market. Yeah, thanks, Jono. Could you give a bit of a, I guess, an overview of what a, maybe it's quite a broad role, but like what a traditional corporate advisory role entails? Because I think that's sort of seen on a lot of companies that they announce you know, a new corporate mandate or a corporate advisory, but people might not be quite familiar with what what that really means and what's being offered to the company. Yeah, sure thing. Look, I think at the core of it, and I think, you know, this does, this does get lost along the way because people just say, you know, especially when a company floats and, you know, there's an advisor in the background who's getting fees, you know, left, right and centre for, for, the, for the easy job of bringing a company to market. It floats and everyone's happy. Um, but it's, it's really at the genesis of a company where you're saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take the risk to try and present this idea to, you know, an array of investors. And obviously it's investors with a pretty high risk threshold because you're dealing with, you know, effectively seed funding for these businesses so you take you're basically engaging with a with a company and my in my view my, my passion is really going out there into the wider community and finding you know some of these you know especially at the moment these family-owned businesses where there might be a succession plan or you know going to areas you know I've, I've got a particular interest in Tasmania where you've got these these sort of you know you, you might have like a farming family who knows how to do farming and things like that you're coming to them going look I want to get you some capital so you can expand and sell more of your product into the mainland or dare say into Asia. So it's then engaging with them and saying, you know, are you willing to, to sell a part of your business to, to get this capital and then and then go on a journey where, you know, as you as you move along and you're able to build this business, obviously the, 
the total pie, the total valuation increases. And then, you know, you consider down the track whether something like an IPO or bringing on other investors is suitable. Yeah, Jono, thanks for that. I guess what I'd probably, uh, the listeners would want to know is is how maybe a corporate mandate would would differ between something that is pre-IPO and light on the capital. Yep. Because um, obviously you're going to take quite a bit of an equity stake as you as you stay with the company, take it through the life cycle and, and obviously extract maximum leverage for, for your hard endeavours. How would that differ, say, from a, a corporate gig that was a, a listed ASX client? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it boils down to the risk curve. At the start, you know, it's you're taking a lot more risk. Uh, you know, a business is much less proven. Obviously, the, the revenue profile is generally at the at the smaller end. Look, with the way I do things, I do want to see a bit of a revenue profile, a bit of evidence that over, say, the last three to five years, the company has had earnings. But you're coming to them saying, and this is because this is obviously a good comment on the the corporate advisory space and where I see the opportunity. I'm I'm much more of the vein that I don't want to just charge a company for charging sake. I, I, I want to be incentivised that you know a I want to invest in the business myself, and b I want to be paid in shares if the business does get to you know those those forward liquidity events, be it an IPO or a trade sale or something like that. Just for the the investor there that might be just coming across an ASX announcement announcement that 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 XYZ corporate advisor has been has been picked up. Do you know typically, or are you comfortable sort of just giving giving the the listeners a bit of a view of what the fee might look like and what's sort of usually the you know how how long that sort of mandate would last and and does that in does that entail a, a future capital raising and a certain fee? Yeah, it's it's, it's a good question. Like there'll be different advisors. They use to achieve different things, you know. I guess in the listed world, they'll generally be remunerated by a retainer, you know. I guess the, you know, the the, the corporate advisor actually spending the time to organise roadshows and everything like that. Um, but you know, they, they they might be taken on for a say a period of twelve months, where, where a company is trying to, I dare say, just get, just get a wider investment base. You know, it might be someone who has a proficiency in say, you know, the Hong Kong market where they can open the doors for a company to investors there you know often often it's about you've got to get the story out there and especially at the moment if, we, if we're taking the you know the aussie market as an example obviously a lot of small caps just don't have that audience you know larger caps obviously they play in a bit a different ball game they've, they've certainly got a, a wider audience you know the bigger bulge bracket banks like you know your ubs's macquarie's and the rest of them are obviously covering these companies but yeah, you know, the companies that are under 100 mil don't don't really have that audience, and that's where I think you know the opportunity is. I guess that sort of is a nice little segue into into talking about sort of one of the the projects that you sort of were involved in, which was AUMAC, and that's tier code AU8. And perhaps you can take listeners through, I guess, sort of identifying a trend um, in in the market that you saw an opportunity, and and that sort of really sp- speaks to obviously unearthing little small cap gems and and. Yeah, and ten baggers, which I believe this this was, is that correct? Yeah, look, it was. And what I'd say with that is, you know, a couple of guys, you know, including the, the you know the directors themselves, who certainly played a, a big role in working together. We obviously had a good team of guys who who sort of thought a, a similar way, where we wanted to try and find something that you know the market wasn't covering. And I, I guess part of that journey was a lot of it was you just didn't know what was going to happen next. You know, we, we, we spent a lot of time sort of working with the vendor in terms of, you know, money to be raised and price that would be done at. And, 
you know, there was a lot of sort of lonely nights where you, you thought it was not going to, you know, there's not going to be any progress. But um, that was essentially my bridge from the sell side to the buy side. And I guess part of that journey was was going out there and, and, and you know, going back to your question on sort of the, the somatic, it was saying, well, you know, at that time, you, you saw in the market that companies like A2 Milk and Bellamy had really started to fire up off the back of the melamine poisoning scare in China. And you thought, you know, what, what, what sort of the, what's driving that? And in our view, it was this, this Daigo market that was emerging. These Chinese buyers were buying product on behalf of friends and family in China. And you just thought, well, what, what could you do here? This is interesting. And, you know, that really led us to sort of going out to the, you know, I guess the Asian-centric parts of Sydney, be it Parramatta and Eastwood at the time, and, you know, meeting the, the owner directly and saying, well, you know, how, how can we work together to, to do more with this, this idea, this business and grow it? That's an interesting um, topic there about the foreseeing of the Daigo market and the, the Chinese interest in, in Australian products. Can you talk at all about some of the other considerations when picking a theme, I suppose, that is going to resonate with investors by the time a company may be at a stage where it's able to list, list on the markets? There are a lot of considerations at the time. And look, there's a lot of risk in terms of your actual timing, in terms of engaging with the ASX and I guess having a slot in which something comes to market. There's a, there's a huge amount of luck in you know, all these factors coming together. So I guess you know, you just, you've, got an in, you've got an inkling that, again, this is thinking about Australia's place in the world. Um, you know, you got an inkling that this was a, a I guess, a product suite that the, the Chinese were buying into, and you're like, well, I don't think that theme is going away anytime soon. You know, more sort of higher standards of living in China, that sort of striving for health and wellness, and obviously the, you know, the ability to buy, be it infant formula vitamins, which they just just simply couldn't buy within China for you know a range of reasons, being that you know the product quality and things like that were seen to be greater in Australia. So it was about identifying that. And then I guess you go through a period where obviously you're negotiating buying a stake in the business at the right price. And then you're trying to really bring, you know, strategic investors on board that are perceived well by the market and obviously are ongoing in their support. To the point where, you know, you, as you yeah, and that's obviously at the pre-IPO stage, to the point that you're actually got saying you're going to IPO and you've got to start to get that story out there, you know, the, the exciting blue sky that's attached to it. And obviously building that investor interest and again, you know, getting the right investors in and just hoping that you can get it to market at a time when the, you know, the, the, the bullish sort of the bullish sentiment is there and off you go from there. And I guess to, um, and not, not with this specific example there, but just more generally, are you able to tell us what happens to the companies that maybe were the corporate advisors or the initial very early stage companies where they don't succeed and where there might have been a little bit of work done with them, but things didn't go to plan? What's the outcome with those usually? Yeah, look, it's, again, it's a, it's a reality. And um, again, you know, with, with these things, there's often, again, it's early stage companies. They have a, you know, a high risk uh, preference attached to them. So, it's you know you're trying to be careful in, in in what things you're getting behind and again you know they they can often there's often you know there's, there's always delays and things that can come up in terms of you know you thought a business's revenue profile would be at x at this time in the future for x y and z reason it hasn't um got to that stage and i guess one one thing i certainly learned on the buy side um was um you know we, we, we're an organization where you know you kind of often you have to be hands-on so you you had to you know hop on the board hop on the board and management and um 
try and find ways to um, to you know fix fix whatever inherent problem that the company had had, and you know it might mean sometimes that subsequent rounds of funding are done. You know sometimes at lower prices. There's you're then thinking about is there other sort of suitors in the market where you can you can sort of merge this business, um, and you know I guess the art of, of pivoting is one that. You know, sometimes you just go, well, this this sort of line of business isn't working. We need to kind of take it in another direction. Um, but ultimately, yeah, you, you know, you've got to be thinking. You've got to, you know, you've got to at the core of it have a good management team uh, who are you know, definitely fiscally aware. Um, you know, they respect the balance sheet and the position, especially at an early stage. But also, as you go along, you, there's a lot of sort of strategic thinking to say, how do we how do we maximise value with this with this business? I just think it's interesting because most people that are just focusing on the listed space probably see, well, they, they inevitably only see the um, successes and things that have come to market. So you get a very different perspective on what's what the process must be like, given that some of them will never never see the light of day. Yeah, look, exactly right. And oh yeah, look, I just look at it and go, look, obviously there's there's an initial excitement with a business as you move along, you know, the cycle. Uh, you then go through this sort of messy middle period where, you know, the maybe the the buzz and everything of the initial idea and everything just dies down, and then you're, you're actually you're, you're into the real side of the business where you're like, okay, well, how do we get this business? How do we how do we scale up this business and get it to a point where it actually is starting to generate cash flow and it is for real? So that's kind of that's when the real work starts to happen, but obviously where you know most of the value can be created. Now, Jono, you just mentioned something really interesting before about um, respecting the capital and the balance sheet, and I can't help but think about um, one of our earlier guests talking about you've you've got to fight for equity, uh, and and certainly in my experience with seeing a lot of um, unlisted stuff like that is is they've probably got some very very sharp um, skills in their sweet spot of what they're doing with their business, but they don't quite understand. The, the equity capital markets or, or what's sort of actually happening out there in the real world. How do you know early on and, and how do you sort of pivot and ensure that, um, like you said, you don't just bury your head in the sand and, and, and make a bit of a pivot? Yeah, look, and I'm, I've, I've certainly learnt that lesson where, you know, you invest in people and things like that. Everyone's got sort of a sort of, you know, high hopes for what will transpire. But what I've learnt is, you know, you've almost got to be piecemeal in the way you feed out equity. You've got to really sweat that equity. You've got to come to a business and go, okay, I know you guys want to raise, let's call it five, ten million bucks or something glorious, and then off you go, the job's done. But it's it's no, that's the, the job's getting started. So you're saying to them, look, you know what? Let's just and it, it's for their benefit as owners of the business as well, in order to reduce dilution. But you're saying to them, look. Let's give you two million dollars at this stage. And what is your wish? What is your wish list? What What would you really like to do? And look, you have that two mil. You add quite a bit of value. It then makes sense to raise thereafter, because you, you know if you do the right thing and really sweat that equity, you're going to be able to raise more money at a higher valuation, and you'll have that trust of the uh, of the shareholders. Whereas if you suddenly just you know gave a business you know a blank check essentially, then they are, you know, often people are liable just to get a bit, a bit loose about the, um, you know, about the money they have. Yeah, that's really good, Jono. Um, I guess maybe if, if I was an investor looking at that and you often hear it or as a, as a punter, you know, geez, I wish I got in at five or 10 cents, but there's a, there's a commensurate amount of risk. Perhaps you can sort of, you know, just sort of give uh, punters a bit of a flavour about, I mean, how, how much they're locked up and, 
you know, the, the lead time in some of these situations? Yeah, look, um, absolutely. Like, um, you know, I, I guess for me now, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work with a number of small businesses. Like I've obviously named Tasmania as a place and, um, you know, it is, it's hard going where, you know, you have, you have a dream, you want to raise. And look, what I'd say with investments is it always ends up taking longer than you expect. Um, you know, you, you, you're trying to give people a bit of money. You're trying to, you know, say for a food brand in, 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 a, in a place like Tasmania that is, that is isolated by, you know, by design, you know, working out the mechanics of actually getting a product in a cost-effective manner from Tasmania, even just to the mainland of Australia, dare, dare say, you know, to Asia when you're dealing with a perishable product, you have to organise pretty, um, you know, pretty strategic lines of, uh, you know, freight. And um, there's a lot of considerations with that, and bringing on partners and, you know, a lot of time trying to, 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 to build up the interest, you know, get the marketing and everything right. It's, um, it's not easy going and, you know, building a business at a scale in that regard. Uh, perhaps you can just sort of uh, give uh, the punters uh, a bit of a flavour about what sort of structure the early investment looked like. Because I think you said something very critical there when you said well, we could raise them five or ten, but you know maybe one or two would work here so that they're, you know, they're still hungry. Do you want to just sort of take us through maybe just you know what a structure might look like? You know whether it's something at five cents, ten cents, and ultimately getting to twenty when it comes to IPO, right? Yeah, look, obviously there's that sort of structure. You know, you can sort of use um, arbitrary sort of five cents, ten cents, twenty cents. It's really about saying, okay, well, you know, for me, it's about looking at a business first and foremost and going, okay, this is this is you know, I guess the revenue profile and. This is what drops out the bottom line. So, if, you know, you come into a business that does 10 million bucks in revenue and it does, you know, a million, two million bucks in EBIT, um, you know, depending on the nature of the business, you're thinking about it and going, okay, look, if I can buy this for three to four times EBIT, if I can buy a 30% stake, then I know in my mind that if I can help the business get to, say, 50 million bucks revenue doing a, you know, Five to five, you know, five to ten mil EBIT would be very, sort of, very nice. And I know on the listed market, the you know, you you, you might have these peers that are trading, um, let's call it, ten to ten to fifteen to twenty times EBIT. So it's about pricing things very well at that time. And obviously, you don't want to blow out the capital structure, so you want to have as fewer shares on issue as possible. And obviously. As the business proves itself and moves up, you can obviously raise more capital, but at those initial stages, keeping the, the capital structure really tight, so raising as little shares as possible at that five cents, let's call it, uh, obviously raising a small amount as money as possible. Those are the critical things to ensure that you know you, you can get to that, that 20 cent level uh, once the business has really been able to, um, to scale up. I guess... One of the things that perhaps people don't know a lot about is, is if someone subscribes for five cents, um, there's usually a mandatory commitment that they they go again at ten or fifteen, and and it's certainly in the IPO, isn't it? Yeah, look, there is, and obviously that you know that mandatory commitment. It's a, it's a funny thing. I, I I like to look at businesses and just you know it's again you know ma- management are accountable. You know, someone in my position is accountable to make sure value is achieved. I'm. You know, I'm, I try to be a bit of a zealot, you know, especially in our current market where you can argue that 
valuations for a lot of things have just blown out to sort of ridiculous levels where actual earnings of a business are no longer relevant. Um, you know, I um, I want to, you know, I want to be seen. I, I, don't, I don't feel compelled. Like, I'll invest at five cents, and you know, you'll say to a business, "Look, this is this is what we we want to see, and all that." And then, you know, it, it, sure, if the business delivers, more than happy to go again at ten cents. But you know, the, you you got to be accountable, and holding businesses accountable is 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 probably the key thing. And obviously, just you know, being scrutinising day to day, you know, and just not sticking your head in the sand. So, yeah, look, it's good. The way this works, yeah, if you can get people to go along the journey, uh, that's great. But they've got to they've got to want it. And they've got to be able to see that the business is delivering. It can't be just an arbitrary look. You came in at five, so therefore you're going to come in at ten. No, that's terrific. Jono, you mentioned about the state of the market. Um, perhaps you can give uh, your sort of view on what you think uh, is sort of currently going um, and, and perhaps you just talk about maybe momentum trading versus uh, value investing. I mean, we don't really like the word investing here at this podcast, but I know we were chatting about this offline and, and it was a really interesting um, topic. Perhaps you can talk to us about that. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm very passionate at the moment. I, I find it very interesting. You know, I've spent a... Uh, Obviously, in, in, in our in our market at the moment, yeah, there's a real uh, disparity between value investment and momentum investment. You know, I've spent a, a bit of time uh, looking at some of the value guys and look, you know, by their own admission, some of them have been absolutely hammered over the last couple of years. You know, they've, they've invested in businesses based on based on an earnings profile. And you know, often they're, they've invested in good businesses uh, and those businesses have then got to what they would perceive to be full value and they've sold out and, you know, the businesses have gone and doubled and tripled um, from there. Whereas, you know, on the momentum side, the, I guess the makeup of our market is that, um, you know, superannuation index funds are often compared to each other, for example, and therefore, you know, all of them. If, if, if there's a certain stock, you know, let's 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 take a, an afterpay or something like that, where in order to maintain their performance, they need to effectively own the stock. Then you can get a lot of people that are that are chasing that, um, you know, that 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 index hugging. So yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic. Where look, there are you know, the market is paying for growth. It's not paying for earnings at the moment. And look, that that can all change. Obviously, you know, we've gone through cycles of that in the past um but yeah look for me at the moment i'm i think the value side of um investing is really really interesting because i'm naturally a you know a bit of a, a contrarian guy um so it's very interesting I, you know i'd struggle to chase some of these these growth names but um you know on the value side some there are some some very interesting opportunities yeah, well, that's a nice segue, Jono. Perhaps you can um, talk about maybe things that punters should be looking for or avoiding when looking at early stage opportunities. Yeah, look, um, it's always, you know, D-Y-O-R, as they say. Um, and I've, I've certainly been wrong in a lot of investments historically. Um, you know, I've got some right, which is cool. But I just, I, I do have a natural cynicism of when you have a particular thematic that has obviously taken off and then, you know, lo and behold, you know, you have different brokers who are listing kind of the seventh, and eighth, ninth, tenth iteration of a particular type of business. You know, we've seen obviously a lot of that in the buy now, pay later space. And look, you know, I, I, I do obviously have a, a scepticism built in where, you know, with, 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 
say, an IPO offering or a capital raising offering, you know, often these businesses go through a bit of a filtering process where certain uh, dealer groups obviously get access to something first and then it filters down and then, you know, it's, um, you know, you've got sort of the, the, the tiers of brokers or online book builds and things like that that are offering something and you're like, well, I've seen this go around the traps sort of a number of times and I haven't been able to get the money and, you know, they're, they're still looking to raise money. So, I've, you know, I'm wary of kind of these um, these sort of hype businesses. I just think that, you know, if you're buying, you're buying into the hype, it, it more often than not eventually does end in tears. It sounds a bit like going back to what you mentioned before, Jono, that the early identification of the thematic means you'll be um, already positioned in the right businesses in the right sector for when the time comes rather than chasing the next one once it's already perhaps running its course. Yeah, exactly right. And look, you know, it's, 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 it's like the work, like often I, you know, I've been very guilty of overcomplicating the market. And you look at some of the ideas that have really taken off out there and they're often, you know, very novel ideas. Again, you know, the buy now, pay later. You're dealing with the fact that teenagers have an aversion to credit cards. and But still, you know, the, the Australian psyche is I deserve something. I want it right now. So therefore, I'm going to have it. You know, to that degree, you've got to just kind of respect that that's part of, you know, part of uh, society. Um so it's, it's elements like that. And then I guess for me, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the world around me and where Australia fits into it. And my job now is I, I, I want to go out there and go, what, what do we have? And this is the same with AUMAKE, you know. Uh, it was thinking about going, what, what do we have that is our unique selling proposition? And how can you bring something that, that is a, a robust, real story that has a, you know, a great tailwind in terms of, you know, obviously for me, be it Chinese tourism or you know, buying buying products that that you know that that people can't buy and they're in their in their countries and, and things like that. And that's that's the stuff that really interests me. Looking forward, Jono, you mentioned something really interesting before about companies that have raised money once or twice before. If if you're a punter that's that's new to this, how do you go about finding that previous information? What what could they search? What could they sort of research? Yeah, look, it's 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 obviously a you know, it's an interesting question and often, you know, that people are playing catch up and, you know, you, you do learn by, by investing and often le- losing money. That's, that's the reality of it. But, I, you know, it goes back to sort of Buffett style that, you know, you've got to be reading, you've got to be reading the prospectus document. You've got to be reading page 55 or 57 to understand what the, you know, who's getting what. Um, it's just, you've got to do your research. You've, you've got to understand that, you know, again, for someone like me, as corporate advisor, I'm getting paid a, a fee of X shares for for bringing this thing to market. And look, there is a wealth of knowledge out there. Obviously, you know, social media is a very interesting one, particularly Twitter. There's some tremendously clued in Twitter posters who who are basically building the book on their own beats, as we used to say in poker, where they're willing to share information and and say, oh, look, you know, I'm skeptical of X. Uh, you know, for, for X, Y, and Z reason, and that kind of forensic um, approach is what I really respect. And look, that, that you know, that comes back to sort of my poker days and things like that, where you've got to really prosecute and backtest a position. But it's it's about reading, and it's about reading the available documents to really understand where your money sits in the in the food chain. Mm. I think that's a really brilliant bit of advice there, Jono, because. You know, typically we've been hearing a few people say that, and and I know I'm guilty myself when you when you go for the odd momentum punt. But you really, if you're going to start risking 
concentrations of your capital, you really have to, to, to read through the, the finer points, absolutely. So just coming from someone who works in the corporate advisory space, Jono, is there anything that you notice people take for granted or have misconceptions about or just things that you wish people had a better appreciation of? Yeah, I think, I think you know, there obviously is this, this cynicism of, of brokers and, you know, some of it is, is founded, you know, well-founded, sure. But at the end of the day, look, and, you know, you've had people, a, a great Aussie kind of, you know, mentality is, is obviously poor, tall poppy syndrome and things like that. People like to, you know, pour hate on people who have done well. And, you know, the reality is, you know, there's nothing stopping people from finding new businesses, trying to make things work and all that. But it's it's not easy. It takes a lot of time. There's a lot of periods when, you know, at least for me, and obviously I'm still on my journey doing things, but there's a lot of time when you don't think something's going to be a success and you're just like, I, you know, I've, I've wasted nine months of my life. Um, you know, people have just got to understand that, you know, that in terms, especially if you're fostering emerging businesses and you're trying to invest in them and, you know, bring them to life. And entrepreneurialism is something that, especially say Australia versus the US, we, we you know, we're shocking in comparison. Uh, but in, in a measured way, you have to kind of respect the risk that people take. Obviously, you don't want people to be, you know, fly-by-night agents who are just trying to rob people of money. But, you know, I just think there's got to be a bit more respect, at least in my position. Look, obviously, I'm trying to do something where I'm trying to foster a lot of these what I call stranded businesses that are under 100 mil, both listed and, and unlisted. And, yeah, it's, it's not easy. And, you know, it can sometimes cost you a lot of capital. And, you know, obviously the risk preference, you know, you can make 10 baggers. Going back to the original talk of this of this, um, of this podcast, you can find your 10 baggers, but, you know, you've got to do the work to find them. Well, that's a fantastic point to wrap up on probably, Jono. Um, a couple of last points. Did you... If, you, if people want to reach out and contact you at all, did you have a preferred um, method for that? Whether it's businesses looking for advice or yeah, just just shoot me just shoot me an email. Um, my email address is Jonathan J O N A T H O N at Prenzler P R E N Z L E R Group dot com dot au. Oh, fantastic. And if you've got a nominated um, 10-bagger that you want to put out there for us, you're more than welcome. Otherwise, we'll um, leave people to search it for themselves. Oh, look. It's always, you know, I caveat all these things with DYOR, as I said before, but, you know, it's got to be A you make again. Look, you know, it was an eight cent listing that went to 84 cents thereabouts. So, and look, you know, as, as our market loves a liquidity trade momentum and look, it got ahead of itself valuation-wise to begin with, but now, you know, it's, it's becoming a very interesting business that's back at 16 cents. Um, a lot of that hot money you'd say is out of it and, in my view, it's um, becoming real, but, you know, people do their own research and, you know, read quarterly reports, read annual reports, read presentations, just just be well read. Well, that's a fantastic summary and wrap, and we certainly appreciate the insights from someone inside the industry, and I'm sure listeners will as well. Did you want to give us a quick uh, overview or wrap of what your current work is at Prenzler now? Yeah, look, happy, happy to talk a bit about it. Um, you know, I'm working with a, another mate of mine, Joel, who was an integral part of AUMAKE as well. Uh, you know, just him and I at this stage running a pretty pretty sort of flexible advisory business. Um, you know, it's it's just about trying to work with some of these small cap businesses and bring them to life, find them capital, structure, I guess, capital raisings at, at an early stage with a view to taking them to an IPO event. Um and then obviously, have, you know, having it on market trading capacity there. I'm certainly, you know, my, my days of working and, you know, advising 
clients on SMSFs and model portfolios. It's, that's not really my thing these days, but um, you know, I'm passionate about finding these new thematics, these 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 new businesses, and and and, and giving them life. So yeah, that, that that's Prenzler, pretty simple, and you know, that's uh, that's the way we like it. Yeah, brilliant, Jonathan. Thank you so much for your time this morning. There's been some really, really great insights for for punters alike and certainly a few things that I know Joel and I picked up. So thank you once again for your time, mate. No worries, gents. Have a good day. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.